G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. So we're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. And we don't ask for anything in return, but we'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcasts or Acast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. You can leave other reviews to, to different podcasts. And we'd really appreciate it if you could take a couple of minutes of your time to leave us a review. So today, uh, joining joining Brian and myself, not not actually in the studio. We've been uh, we've been relegated to uh, to actually Brian's office. Interesting, uh, u- unique experience for, for for all of us, really. So uh, so today is is uh, Charlotte Johnson, one of our lecturers in oncology, joining us today. So thank you very much, Charlotte, uh, for for joining us. You're welcome. Good morning. Good, good morning. Yeah. And uh, so I suppose what we're going to going to talk to you about is sort of maximising your uh, diagnostics that you can really in, in practice or, or just in in general. Um, to get an oncological diagnosis. So, so I suppose that I, we, we were just chatting a bit before that the uh, when the mics were closed about uh, about how we go about this. So, if you if you suspect a patient has a mass, are you going to stick a needle in it regardless? Is that is that where we're going to? Yeah, I mean, certainly um, often the, our, our first line of diagnostics here in oncology is to, to do a fine needle aspirate. Um, you know, there are some times that m- maybe we, we skip that step or we do something slightly different, um, but um, the majority of cases we can gain quite a lot of information from doing that. Um, it's a fairly straightforward, quick procedure to do. It's very minimally invasive for the patient. Um, and also from, a, you know, from an owner's perspective, um, you know, financially compared to some of our other diagnostics is obviously um, fairly cost efficient for them as well. Absolutely. So do you, do you, is there any, I suppose the first thing, would there be any patients that you wouldn't want to do a, a fine needle aspirate on just for, for any particular any particular reason? And then and then do you have a um, a certain patented technique or a technique that you would that you would use to uh, to aspirate? Yeah, I mean I think uh, there's probably not any key ones that we would think, oh, we, we wouldn't necessarily do a fine needle aspirate in that. Um, I guess accessibility can sometimes be, um, be, be things that we think about. Um, you know, in, in masses that maybe originate in the mouth where we're maybe having to sedate the patient anyway to take the sample from, um, given location, we may consider taking a biopsy at the same time because while we're there, um, if we've gone through a sedation procedure, then we, we probably will get a, a kind of a larger sample to evaluate rather than just a, a fine needle aspirate in those instances. Um, there's quite a lot of variation in techniques and I think everybody has their own individual technique of, of, of what they like to do, um, whether that is with the needle with a syringe attached versus the, the needle by itself. Um, the size of needle can be fairly variable. Um, say most of the time a 22 gauge or a 25 gauge needle is what I would consider starting with and I personally prefer to do it without the syringe attached um, and your key thing is I guess trying to um, disturb or get some exfoliation of the cells that are present within the mass so moving the needle around in, in fairly quick succession and um, to be able to to get a sample um, before them uh, you know smearing it onto your slide um, when sometimes you don't know what kind of a sample you're going to get when you initially do the or put the needle into the mass so we know that some masses may be um, fairly vascular um, and um, hemodilution of the 
sample may be a possibility. So those ones trying a, a lower gauge needle is going to be better than, than something bigger. Um, whereas the, the, the opposite side of that, if you're finding with a smaller gauge needle, you're not really getting a sample, you might try to um, use a bigger gauge and, and see whether that is getting you something cellular. Or it could just be that that um, uh, mass that you're dealing with is not going to exfoliate well its, its cells. So it's, it's, do you, can you tell sometimes when um, you don't actually get a lot of cells what maybe the characteristics of that mass are? Sometimes. So we, we know as a big generalisation, sarcomas don't really exfoliate um, very well compared to some of our round cell tumours or epithelial tumours. Um, so your, your suspicion for things may increase depending on what um, type of cellular your sample is. Um, you know, for some um tumours in particular we know exfoliate very well or we can often get a fairly straightforward diagnosis on cytology too so it can give you some clues as to maybe what you're dealing with. And, and is there a limit or to the amount of blood contamination that you can get on a smear that you think actually regardless of the cells that you see there you might not get a diagnosis from that? Um, I think it all comes down to what other cells that you're seeing. So sometimes we don't see anything else other than blood um, and they're, you know, a straightforward non-diagnostic sample. But there may be a small number of, of other cells that you're seeing. I guess the appearance of those um, is going to dictate whether we think that that population that we're seeing is... Uh, maybe a normal population of cells that are, are different from the blood or could be a neoplastic population that we think we could get an answer from things there. And is it is it easier to try and identify cell types that you don't think should be in that place where you're sticking a needle in? Is that the the Valhalla, as it were, of, of reaching a diagnosis that you're... Because I'd imagine that if you're sticking a, a needle into the, the liver and you get some hepatic cells out, well, they, they should be there. You're yeah. looking for abnormalities, but there's a, I'm sure there's a, a graduation between reactive cells or regenerative cells to neoplastic cells, and that might depend on where they are and yeah absolutely so yeah depending on where you're taking the sample from as you say kind of coming from the liver the, the key is if you were going to look at that of being able to identify what a normal hepatocytes look like and are you seeing a population of cells separate to that that really shouldn't be in that organ say for similar for a lymph node so we know we take a lymph node aspirate you're going to see lymphocytes are you seeing other cells that are present um Yes, we can see some other things like mast cells, plasma cells that are maybe present, but do you have this population that really shouldn't be there in a lymph node? So um, having some knowledge of that, if you're looking at your cytology, can, can be helpful for you. Um, the reactive versus neoplastic differentiation can be can be very difficult, and then sometimes, yeah, we... Um, well, we're generally um, uh, involving the clinical pathologists, um, of course, in our, in our diagnosis. And some of those subtle things can be very difficult um, for, for us to try and determine. And sometimes it's very difficult for them that we do need to look at a different form of sample that allows us to maybe look at architecture of things that, to help us make that distinction. So it's more of a, like a true cut biopsy, biopsy, or a biopsy, yeah, incisional biopsy, a true cut biopsy, depending on you know where the where the mass is. Is it an internal organ where um, you know do we do something like a true cut versus a um, a surgical um, procedure in a biopsy, or is this something that um, you know we can do with um, a wedge biopsy or a punch biopsy um, under a, um, a deep sedation or a general anaesthetic? 
And so you said that there's a, a huge variation with this, you know, needle sizes and maybe people adding syringes onto the end to get some negative pressure or not. Do you think that uh, one of the main issues potentially with people not getting a diagnostic sample is, is not necessarily doing enough FNAs or not looking at the, uh, the, the aspirates that they produced or, or, or both? Yeah, I mean, I think um, we do generally get a, a sort of technique that we feel happy with, but there's probably not um, necessarily a, a big range in, in, in not having a good technique to get a sample. Um, but I think, yeah, one of the key is 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 getting used to looking at the sample yourself and seeing, is it a cellular sample? Do you have um, a population of cells that you think could be diagnostic um, for them to, to, to diagnose in clinical pathology? Um, if you're sampling a subcutaneous mass um, and you just get fat on your slide um, and you, you, know, you feel comfortable, yes, that represents the mass, that you can feel fairly happy that you're probably just dealing with a lipoma um, and your management of that mass then in practice or with that dog may be very different from if you took that sample and looked under the microscope and saw a lot of mast cells you know that that yes we've probably got a diagnostic sample and we're going to treat that mass very differently so um Practice is is the key for being able to to look at your slides in um, in the clinic and think you know do I have something that represents what's going on, um, and uh, you know you can learn a lot from from doing that. Um, if you have a slide that unfortunately is just full of blood contamination, um, there isn't really a good cause for you to send that into the lab. They're not going to tell you any anything different from what you're seeing um, and is not then a best utilisation of the owner's finances. Um, being, being able to kind of make that distinction and think, OK, I need to approach this in a different fashion um, can hopefully expedite diagnosis of what's going on um, um, for, the, for the patient as well um, and improve your knowledge and uh, experience in, with, with getting samples and getting confident with your sampling technique and evaluation um, to, to hopefully help things in the future. I suppose you, you spend a, a huge amount of time looking at cytology your, yourself, yeah. in general oncologists yeah. like do, don't they? And is, is there a particular like, reason for, for that? I think some of it is um, we're curious um, about what we're dealing with. You know, we want to know as soon as possible. Um, we have thoughts maybe sometimes of what what is going on and is our clinical suspicion um, tying up with what we're seeing cytologically. Um, but I think the key thing is, do we have something that we think we can get a diagnosis from? Is this the best sample that we have? If we're doing uh, a sampling, say, on a, on a sedated patient, do we think we've got enough to get our answer? Or while the patient is sedated, do we need to take another sample to be able to achieve that diagnosis? Excellent, thank you. So, when are there other um, tests that we we can do necessarily in in general practice that might help us with a ontological diagnosis? Yeah, so other kind of more newer techniques. Um, there's something called flow cytometry, um, which is generally used to help with our diagnosis of lymphoma, um, and it allows us to um, differentiate or diagnose lymphoma, but also give us an immunophenotype of T versus B cell lymphoma. And um, the key with 
um, for oncology with getting the immunophenotype is that we um, here at the RVC will treat our T-cell lymphomas different from our B-cell lymphomas. And so um, that information um, can be uh, or is, is, is needed to to hopefully create the best treatment plan for the patient. Um, flow cytometry can be done on um, various different samples. And so in patients that have a peripheral lymphadenopathy can be done on, on um, fine needle aspects of lymph nodes. Um, if the liver and spleen are potentially affected, you can do it on those. You can do it on blood if you have circulating neoplastic cells. Um, the key thing um, with this um, technique is that it, the cells have to be viable when they're at the lab. So it has to be, um, if we're taking it from a lymph node, it goes into a particular culture medium, um, normally supplied by the lab that you're sending it to, um, and sent to them promptly um, because the, what they have cellular-wise will then dictate if the sample is going to be um, a diagnostic sample for them to, to get results from as well. So there are a number of labs in the, in the UK that look at clay cytometry? There are a few. Um, I think that we that you can send it to it's fairly easy to get them to their them as well um so um you know a widely available test now okay and is that more helpful with dogs or cats or, or both generally more helpful with dogs um in cats we don't um focus on the immunophenotype as much um, it prognostically isn't any different in cats and also we don't treat them any differently too um, so it can be used diagnostically but the information with regards to immunophenotype is not as clinically relevant as it is in dogs and so would there be any reason why you wouldn't necessarily do flow cytometry if you thought a patient had lymphoma so sometimes um, if we have a patient that presents to us already with a diagnosis of lymphoma um, and maybe we don't tend, we're not anticipating doing any more sampling in that patient, um, then we may f sort of try and find other means of, of getting our immunophenotype as opposed to putting through the patient through another procedure again. So um, one other um, option that we have with immunophenotyping is called PAR, which stands for PCR for antigen receptor rearrangement. And that can be done on um, samples that have already been submitted to the lab. So your slides, it's looking at DNA. Um, and so the um, it's not the same viability of the cells that they need at the lab. Um, and that can also give us an immunophenotype. It's often a bit more commonly used to, to help us in a diagnosis of it being something like lymphoma as opposed to a reactive population of lymphocytes. So they're looking at, do we have a clonal population of lymphocytes? And therefore, we're thinking this is probably something neoplastic versus a, a reactive population um, that is not uh, generally not going to be something that's neoplastic. Wow. Um, and are there different sort of sensitivities or specificities about how accurate the, these tests yes, are? Yes, they are. So we, we, we do have to think about that with the, the results that we get um, and having to put that with the clinical picture of the patient. And of course, if it's not fitting, you're starting to question um, the results that you have too, or just putting them into perspective. Um, so yeah, I guess it's key to, to not look at those as a, an isolated test, but to look at the, the patient um, and the other tests that you've maybe done to, to get to your diagnosis. 
And so that's pretty the other thing that I think on- oncologists uh, use a, a lot, apart from clinical pathology, would be sort of diagnostic imaging and, and uh, to, to try and sort of stage the progression of the disease for, for, for some uh, neoplastic diseases. And I suppose that what, at what time frame do you think it's appropriate to think about like, diagnostic imaging when you're dealing with a patient that you think has a, has a tumour um, and maybe how extensive should, should that be mm-hmm. as, as well? Yeah, so there are... I guess I often try and break it down thinking about oncology and, and neoplastic processes as trying to answer the two questions of what it is and, and where it is. Um, and where you think a tumour may spread to is going to be very dependent on what we think the tumour is. So I think often the the key thing is trying to get a diagnosis of, of, of what the, the main thing that is that's going on. So if that's a, a mass that we were subcutaneous mass that we're, we're presented with, then trying to get an answer as to exactly what that is will then, I think, dictate um, staging-wise what we think is appropriate. So a tumour that... Um, rarely spreads to an abdominal organ you have to question the utility of evaluating abdominal organs is that the best utilization of um, diagnostic procedures or um, you know patients and owners finances to some extent Um, whereas a you know a tumor that we know spreads very commonly to the lungs then absolutely that's going to form part of our our staging Um, why do we do staging Um, it helps us um, get an indication of it the extent of the disease and that ultimately may change how we approach what is maybe the primary presenting mass um so um, in dogs that have maybe extensive metastatic disease we're going to approach very differently from a, a dog that or cat that has um, a very localized um tumor so that can mean um, what you do adjuvant therapy wise or sometimes um, whether we're solely treating with some form of systemic therapy as opposed to um, you know primarily a local treatment such as surgery or radiation therapy um, the other way that we sometimes will use utilize imaging is to um, sort of stage the tumor so um, that we may be looking at how extensive the tumor it is how invasive it is into that region um, it doesn't necessarily always help us as oncologists but from our surgery team's perspective can give them a lot of information about um, feasibility of surgery what they think that they can achieve and um, which they can then relay back to us and and sort of let us know their options from a surgical standpoint um, and helps us then think okay well what is the best for this patient a primary surgery approach maybe a surgery radiation approach depending on what the tumor is we're dealing with too um, so, 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 so radiation is a more of a uh, um, so more of a treatment for certain certain mm-hmm. cancers and uh, is that is that increasing in the in the veterinary um World? Yeah, I think um, the the utilization of radiation therapy um, is is increasing. Um, we have more more centres available to us that uh, can offer that modality, um, not to the same level of, of where we can offer chemotherapy and, and surgery. And um, some of the costs of radiation therapy are are higher than um, some of the other treatments that we have available to us. So it's not always an option, um, but it can be utilized 
utilised um, as another option for local treatment in combination with, with other local treatments or as a, a sole treatment for a variety of different tumours. Um, the utilisation of it as a modality and, and what we expect to achieve is going to be tumour dependent. So we know things can be radiation sensitive and things that are maybe not very sensitive to radiation. Um, the literature evidence that we have is growing. Um, it's still probably in, in some aspects or with some tumours in, in its infancy, but the more information that we can gain, um, hopefully it will, will likely become um, a, a, an impre increasing modality uh, um, that we utilise with, with both surgery and chemotherapy. And, and so what, what does the future hold for um, oncological diagnostics? So, um, you know, I know that when I was in, in practice, people would always ask about like, blood tests to work out whether, you know, what, what, you know, what is going on or <laughs> does it leave you to a diagnosis? Um, but, but also with, with, you know, with tumours, definitely in people, they've got some biomarkers that might be linked to certain neoplastic diseases. And are we, are we, are we approaching that with, with certain more common neoplasias in, in dogs or cats or is it is it still uh, in the horizon or at the end of the rainbow? Yeah, I, I think it's a, an exciting area within veterinary medicine, within oncology. Um, and as you say, in human medicine, it, it's something that's utilised quite frequently um, with regards to different biomarkers and that they will, will, will utilise for diagnostics and, and prognostic factors as well. Um, we're not there yet in veterinary, veterinary medicine, but I think it's something that is on, on the horizon that may be something that becomes available to us. Um, the more research that's done to, to looking at those things and, and does it help us understand what's going on? Does it help us? make earlier diagnoses does it help us prognostically um so i suspect in in the future that may be something that be um potentially is is more utilized by us in, in veterinary oncology and is is that charlotte um are, are certain neoplasias linked to uh, specific species i mean uh, i suppose what i'm trying to ask is some of the research that is is done for for people and, and uh, oncological diseases are, are they models in in our species or is there similarity between uh common neoplasias say say lymphoma because i suppose that's what we're yeah yeah ab absolutely um in dogs um and, and what we're be learning a lot more now is that dogs can be a, a very good model for understanding um, various different human cancers. Um, dogs develop spontaneous tumours just as humans do um, and we can learn um, a lot from them, their disease um, and their lifespan is obviously a lot shorter than, than what we have in people um, and so we can um, monitor diagnosis and progression of various different tumours um, a lot quicker and get a lot more information um, more quickly in dogs than, than um, following um, things more in, in humans as, as their, their disease progresses um, and being able to monitor a spontaneously occur, occurring tumour is, is a lot more beneficial than as um, creating a tumour in, in something like a mouse model because we just um, yes there's a, a lot of um, things that you can learn from that but it's not the same as it developing um, within um, a, a kind 
kind of an animal model um, or, or in humans and what we anticipate progression-wise and response to, to therapy and those kind of things can be very different. Um, there are some tumours that we, we know, I think, kind of follow what we see in, in human medicine very closely. Um, so they're key areas that I think uh, uh, dogs can be very useful models. Um, and I think that again in the future is, a, is another area that um, will continue to um, be utilised and progress for, for us to learn and I guess the good thing is that, that we learn a lot for the patients that we treat um, and then hopefully we are um, helping um, doctors learn a, a lot more about um, how it works in human medicine and, and what we can hopefully help to uh, learn and progress in, in human medicine. And, and do, you, do you think there's been a, a bit of a change in um, people's perception of, of oncology and veterinary patients and, and that's in improving when people understand that you know, therapies are available and it's not, um, it's not, it's, we're not looking at the, uh, I suppose, the same treatment methods that we that we use in in people yeah i think um veterinary oncology in general is a um a very kind of rapidly progressing specialty with regards to um owners that are seeking out information with regards to um tumors and, and cancers that their their dog or cat has been diagnosed with that um they may be um, weren't as aware of being available um, a few years ago um, and so I think there is a lot from the um, from owner's perspective that they're keen to get more information and I think that's probably the key they're curious they want to know more they want to get the information to make an informed decision and maybe their decision would be unchanged and what they decide to do but um, I think as we all are we're, we're, we're much more keen to try and find out more information as opposed to um, you know just being told this is you know what what we need to do. Um, the owners often openness to various different oncological treatments um, I think is is also opening up to um, so and the, the use of chemotherapy and radiation therapy um, I think uh, yeah owners are, are more interested in in hearing about that and I think when they understand that you know we are utilizing it um, but keeping a patient's quality of life um, and that they're leading a, a normal life um, as much as possible when they realize that's the case are definitely more open to it um, a lot of owners um, you know maybe haven't experienced that with their pet but do have friends or family members that have maybe for instance had to go through chemotherapy which you know is very different in humans than you know what we experience in, in our patients and that is from a fact that we are using lower doses we're not always having the goal of, of a cure at um, no matter what side effects we want to keep their side effects to a minimum um, and I think the majority of owners are surprised when they meet some of our oncology patients up in reception that are bouncing around and happy and have a great quality of life while receiving a chemotherapy protocol. Um, I think given um, time as well, again, owners will continue to explore options. Um, the uh, option that we have of pet insurance as well takes away some of the the financial um, constraints from from owners as well um, which means that they are um, more open to kind of other therapies as well 
So it seems like a, a good a good future for for, uh, for yes. oncology, which is which is good. It needs some, I suppose, we need to be able to you know treat some more patients to work out that you know what treatment protocols work exactly. best and yes. and to to develop things even further. I suppose rather than just stay surgery or yeah. stay where we are. Abs- yeah. Absolutely. So if I so is there is there anything else you think that can, might help people with their initial sort of diagnostics for an oncological workup? Um, so I think that the, I guess some of the key um, things thinking about is is trying to get a diagnosis before making a decision on a definitive treatment. Um, for instance, if you're presented with a, a subcutaneous or a cutaneous mass, um, I think what knowing exactly what that is. Um, can help dictate then whether we need to consider any more staging for a patient um, and ultimately what the best um, treatment modalities are for that particular tumour. It can vary quite a bit. If we're dealing with something that's benign versus malignant, a malignant tumour that's just locally aggressive versus one that has a a high metastatic potential. So I guess for me, key is let's work out what it is and then what follows on from that um, is very much dictated by... By, um, what we have present excellent well thank you very much for You're your, your time today um and uh, and thank you for listening i, I forgot uh, we had actually a couple of reviews uh, uh brian so i might i might just read these out before we uh, before we go we've got a one-star review which i'm a bit confused about because it says i'm a final year student at the rbc that's it's good for but revision with this lovely sunshine uh is near about impossible so these podcasts are great for long bike rides or dog walks still feel like i'm studying while keeping myself sane thanks a bunch keep them coming one star I, i'd hate to think what a five-star review from this person would be but anyway um, so another one uh, that I've just discovered this podcast and I'm, I'm working my way through these episodes it's a great way uh, to fit some bite-sized chunks of CPD in daily life so easy to listen to and relevant for everyday practice thanks and from a not so year student so Brill podcast easy to listen to and absorb particularly when the brain can't take any more notes so thanks a million so um, I know there's a, a number of fun years out there who uh, who might listen to the podcast so uh, um, to you all no matter what university you're in um, good luck with uh, your final year exams and we hope they all go well um, and uh, we also hope that you'll continue listening to the podcast even when you when you pass your finals and uh, and continue to write us reviews and things like that and good luck for the future um, so we'll we'll leave it there and uh, and uh, again so you know don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit based device um, and don't worry you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast so please leave us a review like the um, preferably five stars or if you give us one star I suppose you could um, comment very nicely on, on the podcast but anyway it helps uh, with our metrics and getting this information out to, to the people that want to listen to it um, we'll place it in show notes on the RVC pages so just type in RVC clinical podcast in your search engine of choice and it should be top of the tree if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast please get in touch so you can either email dbarfield.rvc.ac.uk or tweet at dombarfield until next time bye bye